Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Repudiating Robertson. How can we know when God speaks? And is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 29th, 2006. After calling for the assassination of President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, then claiming that God caused Ariel Sharon's massive stroke as punishment for conceding land to the Palestinians, Pat Robertson later claimed that Satan caused Dick Cheney's shortness of breath that briefly hospitalized the vice president. And why? Quote, because he is dedicated to defeating the evildoers in Iraq, and that angered the evilest doer of all, Satan, end quote. On that same show, Robertson extended condolences to California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who needed 15 stitches in his lip after, quote, a motorcycle accident that I'm pretty sure was caused by Satan, end quote. Satan, said Robertson, is no match for a Republican, end quote. These pronouncements were made on his show, The 700 Club, on January 5th and January 10th, 2006. You can find extremists anywhere. In entertainment, for example, Howard Stern signed a $500 million five-year contract with Sirius Satellite Radio because public standards of decency seemed to constrain his vulgarity. Moderate Muslims must contend with Iranian president who called for the removal of Israel from the earth. For their part, scientists cringe at colleagues like Huang Wu Suk, who resigned from Seoul National University in December after he fabricated data on stem cell research, or at the zealous atheism of the neuroscience student Sam Harris, who has a new book called The End of Faith, in which he derides all religion as, quote, a ludicrous obscenity, end quote. Or what about the business community, which surely blushes at the numerous Enrons that enriched senior executives, plundered their employees, and corroded public trust? So, let it be said that conservative Christians have not cornered the market on radically repulsive fanaticisms. But I'm a Christian. And so I'll repudiate Pat Robertson's remarks as not only idiotic, but as indefensibly reprehensible and appalling. I believe they do harm to the gospel, to believers, to your neighbor down the street, and, given the unfortunate scope of his influence, to the whole world. Robertson's pronouncements also provoke an important question that the scriptures for this week raise. We read in Deuteronomy 18, verse 21, how can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? Claims made on behalf of God run the gamut. Some of them are harmless hoo-ha, laughably ludicrous. One night in the wee hours of the morning, a friend of mine couldn't sleep. And so in the course of his channel surfing, he saw a television preacher heal an extremely large woman. As he pressed the palm of his hand to her forehead, she collapsed backwards into a heap, 
into the waiting arms of his assistant, only to have her wig snagged off when it brushed the buttons of his blazer. Even sincere pronouncements can make us uncomfortable, as when in a Bible study a friend might boldly assert, God spoke to me last night, and he told me such and such. Some ministries look like money laundering schemes. Others make fallacious and self-serving claims, like America is an exception and has a special place in God's heart, while still others, like Bruce Wilkinson's book, The Prayer of Jabez, peddled what I call junk food theology. It makes promises it cannot possibly fulfill, like, quote, you can have a front row seat in a life of miracles, end quote. Most disturbing of all are the toxic declarations made by influential Christians, like Robertson or Jerry Falwell, who scapegoated gays and feminists for the 9-11 attack, or Franklin Graham, Billy's son, who countenanced the use of nuclear weapons against Muslim countries. So, how can we know whether and when a person speaks for God? Start with your sanctified common sense. Trust your instincts. Also, remember that speaking the truth does not mean you never offend someone. The scriptures for this week then suggest two other principles that should guide us. I consider these two principles necessary criteria, even though they're not sufficient by themselves, for the complicated question of validating claims of a word from the Lord. First, people who speak truly for God operate with a healthy sense of the audacity of what they're attempting. They're acutely aware of the presumption inherent in claiming to speak for God. After all, who in their right mind would hazard such a claim given the combination of human frailty and divine inscrutability? I'm sure that every sane preacher who's ever mounted a pulpit has experienced the dread and even the adrenaline shock of his preposterous task in some stumbling and bumbling way to speak a word that is true to God. I think of this as a holy hesitancy, and it's well-founded. In the Deuteronomy passage for this week, the penalty for false prophecy was death. In the New Testament passage for this week, in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, he warns believers who were overly confident about their Christian knowledge. Quote, the person who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. 1 Corinthians 8.2 Whereas some ministries eagerly promote personality cults, simplistic formulas, and authoritarian appeals, the desert monastics of the 4th and 5th centuries actively shunned clerical responsibility. They were decidedly reluctant to speak and act for God. John Cassian, who died in the year 435, judged it a trick of the devil to, quote, inveigle us into desiring the holy clerical office under the pretext of edifying many, end quote. Evagrius, who died in the year 399, even described clerical aspiration as, quote, the source and root of the love of power, end quote. 
To take a third example, when a saint asked Abba Theodore, Father, speak a word to me, for I am perishing. The old man replied sorrowfully, I myself am in danger. What can I say to you? For these early ascetics, renunciation, obedience, and confession of thoughts to an elder were a necessary check on trusting your own judgments, something that Isidore the priest described of all evil suggestions the most terrible. Uncritical acceptance of your own ideas, your own impulses and inclinations, was a sure sign for these ascetics of spirituality run amok. They were especially dubious of overzealous piety that expressed itself in what Cassian called immoderate and inappropriate fasting, severe vigils, inordinate praying, or excessive reading. Second, Paul insisted that concrete deeds of love accompany genuine claims of divine knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, we read in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. In Mark's gospel for this week, we read that people were amazed at Jesus' authority and his new teaching. But in Mark contrast to how the religious establishment operated, writes Mark, his was an authority that authenticated itself by fostering human healing and wholeness. Cassian called this, quote, integral wholeness, end quote, and it's something we wish not only for ourselves, but for every human being. Here, too, the ruthless realism of the monastics can save us from foolishness that masquerades as wisdom. Those grizzled monks experienced every sort of pompous pronouncement, spiritual fraud, and pious pretense. They knew what it meant for a deluded believer to be, quote, deceived by his innumerable revelations and wrongly believe that he was a messenger of righteousness, end quote. Their antennae were especially sensitive to what Cassian called specious authority, in loveless judgmentalism. Instead, they counseled a nearly unqualified compassion toward human weakness, a consideration for frailty, and heartfelt empathy for those who struggle. Christians truly close to the heart of God then, quote, never frighten with bleak despair those who are in trouble or unsettle them with harsh words, end quote. They gladly, fully, and freely proclaim that God was the gracious arbiter of hidden strength and human infirmity. They looked, in the words of Cassian, with a kind of overwhelming wonder at God's ineffable gentleness. So should we. I've made my own share of stupid remarks. Thank God I was not on television nor did I command an audience of millions. My poor judgment on those occasions has reinforced my beliefs about the necessity of theological modesty in the primacy of love. I do believe that God speaks today, but given the cacophony of voices ranging from the goofy to the godly, 
Hearing what he says demands that we distinguish between what engineers call the signal-to-noise ratio. And now for further reflection. Do you feel that God has ever spoken to you? If so, when and how? How do you feel when others make this claim and why? Third, in your opinion, who today speaks truly for God and what distinguishes them? And finally, for further reflection, I would recommend a wonderful book by Charles Kimball, the title of which is When Religion Becomes Evil, Five Warning Signs. For my book review this week, I review a book called In the Heart of the Desert, The Spirituality of the Desert Fathers and Mothers by John Krasovkis, Bloomington, World Wisdom, 2003, 163 pages. I love the two aphorisms that Krasovkis uses to introduce the overall message of the 4th century desert monastics. From W.H. Auden's In Memory of W.B. Yeats, quote, In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountains start. And then, from Isaiah 35, verse 8, The road of cleansing goes through that desert. It shall be named the way of holiness. The desert was the laboratory of Christian discipleship for these early saints, and we have much to learn from their experiment. Chrysogus, professor of theology and former dean at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology, has not only studied the Desert Fathers as a scholar, he spent time with them as a fellow Christian pilgrim. The result is a wonderful introduction to these early ascetics, similar to the book by Rowan Williams called Where God Happens. His 18 chapters are brief and to the point. They cover all the pertinent themes that you would expect. Patience, silence, tears, guidance, detachment, and on it goes. And then three that are rather pleasant surprises. Chapters on the body, the environment, and gender. Chrysogus quotes copiously from the desert sayings. The book is complemented by color plates of icons, a simple map of the area, a timeline of, of people, a bibliography, and then the reflections of Abba Zosismos of the 6th century that are translated here for the first time. The monastics commend themselves for a number of reasons. John the Baptist denounced the kingdom in the desert. Jesus fled to Egypt as a baby. And in Luke's gospel, our first glimpse of him as an adult was when the Holy Spirit drove him in the desert to be tempted by Satan. Second, these desert dwellers were practitioners of healing, not abstract theoreticians. They sought personal transformation and not merely theological information. But they believed the wisdom of Diodocus of Photiki from the 5th century that, quote, nothing is so destitute as a mind philosophizing about God when it is without him. Third, 
These desert monastics might strike us as anachronistic oddballs today, and certainly no one would accuse them of being well-adjusted to society, either then or now. But we misunderstand them if, they, if we construe their bizarre lifestyles as spirituality of superficial techniques. What they modeled and what we should emulate is a transformation of the interior geography of the heart, whatever one's exterior circumstances. For them, the desert was a specific, literal place. But for us today, it can also be a metaphorical, spiritual way. Fourth, I honor the desert mothers and fathers because I want to place myself in the mix of saints who have gone before me. Tradition, said G.K. Chesterton, means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It's the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. So with Chesterton, I want to place myself in the rich tradition of these spiritual giants. And finally, I love the desert monastics most of all for their profound humanity. These saints modeled what Chrysavis calls a spirituality of imperfection, in which one is not ashamed or embarrassed to embrace and affirm one's brokenness, wounds, darkness, and inner demons. They comfortably acknowledge intense struggle as a necessary virtue, praying with Serapion of Thumius from the fourth century, Lord, we entreat you, make us truly alive. In the heart of the desert, the spirituality of the desert fathers and mothers by John Chrysavgus. For film this week, I review a German film from the year 2004 called Downfall. Nominated for Best Foreign Film in 2004, Downfall recreates Hitler's final days in his underground Berlin bunker. The film opens with a real-life clip from Traudel Junger, age 81, whom Hitler had hired as his secretary when she was only 22, nearly 70 years ago. In fact, Junger wrote a memoir about her experiences and she sat for a lengthy interview turned movie called Blindspot, which was released in the year 2002, both of which served as material for downfall. Struggling to forgive herself, Junga remarks, quote, I never thought that fate would take me somewhere I'd never really wanted to be, end quote. But contrary to Hitler's insistence that she and others flee Berlin as the Russians invaded, Junga stayed to the bitter end. Delusional, paranoid, and mercilessly disdainful of the German citizenry who suffered the carnage of his megalomania, it is chilling to watch Hitler in his volcanic rage as his end approaches. He screams about betrayal and strategizes with battalions that no longer exist. At 155 minutes, this is a long film. But even though we know the outcome before we begin, the film maintains its dramatic tension. 
Strong portrayals of Eva Braun, who married Hitler in the bunker a few days before they both committed suicide, of Himmler and Goebbels, both enriched the plot. Magda Goebbels, in fact, murdered her six children with cyanide pills rather than have them live in a world without Nazi socialism. Downfall reminded me of the idiocy and the horror of war, its catastrophic human toll, and the consequences of leaders who are blinded by ideology, surrounded by psychophants, and deaf to genuine criticism. In German, with English subtitles, Downfall. And finally, for poetry, we've posted an untitled poem by the wonderful Helen Keller, who lived from 1880 to 1968. They took away what should have been my eyes, but I remembered Milton's paradise. They took away what should have been my ears. Beethoven came and wiped away my tears. They took away what should have been my tongue, but I had talked with God when I was young. He would not let them take away my soul. Possessing that, I still possess the whole. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 29th. And please join us every week for an essay on the biblical lectionary, a book review, a film review, poetry, and monthly music reviews. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.